Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. The power of Semitic poetry stems, literally, from the functionality of its consonantal roots. With but three consonants, a long series of words used in a specific way, set in a specific pattern according to an ordained order and rhythm, can be carefully arranged so that even the sound of the words can be manipulated to conform to the author's design. Classical Arabic and Hebrew poets have so much power to create this kind of literary structure that the structure itself conveys meaning. Once you understand Semitic functionality, the only obvious question is, why wouldn't the arrangement of biblical books work the same way? We struggle with this because we're Hellenists. Someone asks our opinion and we start talking about words we form in our mind, which are based on other words in our mind. We converse with ourselves about our own philosophical abstractions and marvel at the imaginary connections we invent within our artificial systems. We make stuff up. The fancy word for that in academia is interpretation. If you really want to sound smart at coffee hour, call it hermeneutics. That's why we are all naturally dubious about the significance of the order of books, because everybody knows that interpretation is dubious. But functionality is not interpretation. What a functional element means can be discussed and debated, but the consonants and the structure itself are right there, alongside the earth mammals and the vegetation. No interpretation required. Richard and I revisit Mark chapter 1. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 428 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Here we are, Dr. Benton, in the wilderness. We are in that beautiful place in between Gospels, like an episode of Star Trek, when something went wrong and the Enterprise broke the barrier of the Milky Way and is in the open void between the infinite collection 
of galaxies. Fortunately, the biblical canon is not infinite. It is closed. The words of philosophy and theology are endless. We all know because we've had to sit through many lengthy talks and papers. But the canon is closed. So soon we will move to the next text and the next text and loop back to the beginning in the closed canon. We'll be talking about the Gospel of Luke. Why, you ask? Because we began our discussion of the four Gospels going to the four corners of the earth with the Gospel of Mark because we thought it's short. It was written to safeguard the teaching of the Apostle Paul for the churches within the narrative arc of the New Testament. And it was interesting. So we went for it, which is kind of how Richard and I roll. We throw something up, we see if it sticks, and we go for it. But in our reading of Matthew over the past couple of years, as our knowledge has deepened of Scripture through our study under Father Paul Tarazi, we've also come to understand the importance of the storyline with respect to the order of books, and we've talked often about that from the very beginning, but the importance has become more top of mind as we've worked through the text together. In the last couple of episodes, the beginning of the Gospel of Mark has been top of mind for me because I've been doing classes on the side with parishioners of St. Elizabeth on Father Paul's work, The Rise of Scripture, which places so much emphasis on the Midbar and the voice of the shepherd in the wilderness, the autocrat, in opposition to institutionalism and its systems which come part and parcel with the city. That's the tension, for example, in my book, Torah to the Gentiles, between the curricula of systems of education and the agenda of the autocrat, which is the midbar in the wilderness, the actual text of Scripture. It's something that I've fought for in my ministry at St. Elizabeth now for some time. So it's striking that at the end of Matthew, the tomb is exploded open, which we've explained as a metaphor for the destruction of the city, the destruction of Jerusalem and its religious and civil infrastructure, ultimately the destruction of the temple. It's the husk of the temple laid bare so that the shepherd can escape that infrastructure so that God's autocrat, Jesus Christ, can escape that infrastructure and that system to carry his dabar, or more specifically his dabarim, his words, out into the wilderness to share with all of the nations. Which is where the dabar, or the dabarim, the words of the autocrat, come from, the wilderness. With that in mind, it hits my ears like a ton of bricks that at the end of Matthew, which ends in that wilderness among the setting of the nations equalized in the presence of Jesus Christ holding the scroll 
of God's instruction that we begin the next gospel with the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the voice of the shepherd. And again, Rich, it calls to mind the word midbar, which for Father Paul has a very important technical grammatical significance in Hebrew. This connective tissue between what's happening in Matthew and what's happening in Mark, I'm glad we are taking a moment to talk about this, Father, because, you know, naturally, you know, we already did Mark, like you said, we could go from Matthew and just go to Luke or whatever. But let's focus in on this. I'm glad you brought this up because he's out in the Galilee, and then we're going to come to the wilderness. We're going to come to the desert. We're going to come to Jordan. But even before we come to Jordan, we come to the words of Isaiah, which is my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare the way before the the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Even before we meet John the Baptist, we hear the words of Isaiah talking about the wilderness. Last time we talked about these poor disciples that had schlepped all the way up to the mountains of Galilee. Now everyone's coming back down to the lowlands out to eventually Jordan, we'll find out. But the first thing is that this comes from Isaiah, where the mountains are laid low and the valleys will be brought up. Everything is going to be evened out. And the place where it all meets is in the desert. So when Jesus was teaching his disciples about how this needs to go out to all the nations, then we come to the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in Mark 1.1, the Son of God, which we notice that Jesus significantly did not call himself in Matthew. Only the narrator in Mark calls him the Son of God after we see the emptiness of Jerusalem, after we see that people doubted, and after we see that all power has been granted to him from his father, making him, as you said, father, the autocrat. At this point, the biblical story calls Jesus Christ the Son of God. Only then. So we have Jesus crucified, emptiness, the appearance of Jesus with some doubting, And Jesus repeating, just go and keep teaching. Then, at that point, we see him called the Son of God before we move out into the wilderness. We want to track these events. We want to track what the story is saying. Even if we don't talk about the author's intent, we're just talking about the words on the page. This is the order that the words appear in. This is the order we have to go through them, each one informing the next. This is why the Bible as literature is key to me and key to you, Father, is because this order of items is of the essence. It is the background here. And so that's why, you know, we want to mention Mark before moving on. But at the beginning of Mark, we go from the Galilean Matthew to the desert of Jordan. The autocratic voice of the shepherd is not helpful for Jerusalem. And this is the tension. It's not helpful. Not having a curriculum for your class is not helpful. Because then how can people shop for your class? How can people decide whether they want to attend? How can people prepare their questions for your class? How can people decide what they are going to get out of it? They can't. So then no one will come and your class won't have participation or it will have very few attendees, Father Mark. 
and no one will want to join your church and it won't grow. So why are you doing it? That's a sinful question. I keep telling everyone that is the wrong question. Because your point of reference is not the kingdom when you ask, why should I or why am I doing it? It's the wrong question. Because we are sheep in the Lord's flock. We have only to say, bah, when the autocrat speaks. It's difficult. Now, when you submit to the voice of the shepherd, which is against institution, it's terrible for your group in the city and what you're trying to achieve under your banner. It's not going to work, but it's great for having tea with the neighbors who happen to be Catholic and Muslim or nuns. Nuns as an N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. But they could be nuns as an N-U-N-S too. We all get to sit together. And if a few are interested in hearing you parable a few parables, as we hear in the good book, then by all means, parable a few parables and share the words of the autocrat. But you can't impose it. Most of all, you can't impose it by imposing your group. Remember the admonition of Matthew. You traverse land and see to make a single copy of yourself. And once you make a copy of yourself, they're twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's what proselytization is. You are making a copy of yourself. Your identity, your group, you are putting up your flag. You're like the Russians or the Americans scrambling to put a flag on the moon. Good for you. Do you think you own the moon because you put a flag there? Again, this business of the Midbar is very serious because the wilderness is what it is. You can't control it. You didn't make it. And the link between the Dabarim, the words that God speaks, and the Midbar, which is the word for the wilderness that is used frequently in the scroll of the Torah is technical. Notice how when we think of word in the philosophical sense of the Hellenistic Logos, we think of words in abstraction that aren't connected to anything. They're concepts that we imagine and we create complexity. But the Midbar is a word or words that are spoken that are linked to a physical reality that is something we can't make with our own hands. In Hebrew, there is an obvious visual connection between the Midbar and the one who speaks, the Midaber. We have the root Davar, which means word, and then we have a verb derived from that, which is Deber, which is he spoke. So Midaber is the one who speaks. And the translation sometimes is the Lord said. We see that sometimes in scripture. But in fact, if we see Yahweh Midaber, it means the Lord is the one speaking or the speaker. Now, visually, this looks exactly the same as Midbar, which is the desert. And it just has to do with the vowels that you put on it. Is it Midbar versus Midaber? 
That's the difference between a desert and a speaker. Now, there are other words you could use for a wasteland or for a flat place or a wilderness or whatever, but the biblical authors used this word midbar as an important piece of the story. Our elder, Skandar Bushar, mentioned if you take the beginnings of the names of the books of the Torah in Hebrew, which you just use the first word or one of the first words for the name of the book, the word for numbers is Bamidbar, in the desert. The word for Deuteronomy is Dbarim, which is words, the plural of Davar. In the desert, they're words. We need to see that there's a connection between speaking and the desert, visually, and by, even more importantly, sound. Anyone who hears Midaber Midbar can tell that there is a relationship there, even if it isn't etymological, you have the same consonants in there. It's impossible to miss. So if you read it on the page or you hear it, it's impossible to miss. Visually, we have sometimes these puns, and so you can see the word Yahweh speaking, but it can also mean Yahweh is a desert, because there is no is in the present tense in Hebrew. So it's either Yahweh speaking or Yahweh the desert. This connection between the word of the Lord in the wilderness, they're inextricable. And it is precisely where there is nothing that we hear this word. And that's exactly what we were talking about in Matthew 28. In Matthew 28, it was precisely the husk of the tomb, as you said, Father, that bore the fruit of the word so that Jesus came out and just kept teaching again. You know, it's like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He taught Luke, and then he died, and then he came back, and then he continued to teach Luke. This time, he looked more glowy, and you could kind of see through him and that sort of thing. We don't have that in the gospel. Jesus says, you go and teach, and then he goes. Now, he says, I'll be with you until the end of the age. Great. But it's your job to go and teach his word. So the fact that we end with the teaching and the word in Matthew and begin with the teaching and the desert in Mark fits together in this beautiful way according to the pattern we see already in the Old Testament. I mentioned in last week's episode that shepherdism, the components of shepherdism, were established by the hand of God. They're part of the setting of the wilderness. All of the creatures that God made, of which the human being is one, the vegetation and the land animals, the actual landscape itself, all of that was by the hand of God as part of the creation of the heavens and the earth. And in that setting, it is God who appointed man the special responsibility or the special relationship with the animals of shepherd. It is the view of Scripture, which is no view at all. It's simply an explanation of what is there, that man's relationship to the other animals, min adama, is one of shepherd. There isn't a creation of the role of shepherd by an institution the way you create the role of engineer or the role of architect 
or the role of analyst or the role of manager. These are roles that you architect and create with your city. The actual function shepherd is part of the creation of the heavens and the earth. It's not made by the hand of man. In the same way that the natural behavior of the deer and the antelope in their natural setting is the work of God's hands, not the work of man's hands. The wilderness itself, which is linked to the term midbar. Imagine a word in Scripture that is used to describe the act of uttering the autocrat's commandments. The one who is speaking, the autocrat in the wilderness, the shepherd, who's whistling to his flock. The very verb that is used to explain his speaking is also the word that describes the physical locale. This is going to take time for some to actually hear and receive what I'm saying. There's no space between the word that is used and the words of God and the locality from which he's speaking. There's no abstraction whatsoever. There's no separation between the physical reality and the words of Scripture. There is no abstraction. This is the extent to which the writers of Scripture are battling against Greek philosophy and subsequently Hellenistic theology. Because God made the heavens and the earth. If you go beyond that, it's something you made. It's an idol. It's beautiful. Think about it in very basic terms. The minute you start talking about Russia and Ukraine, what are you talking about? You're talking about something you made. If you take a picture of the land, there are no borders. It's as simple as that. <laughs> now, guaranteed, at least 60% of our audience is going to be up in arms about borders and constitutions and real politique and resources. Yes, I understand. Absolutely, the war is over resources. But who cares? Scripture tells you, share your resources. Don't use your religion as a justification for stealing my water or my gas. Come on. Just go back and watch Space Odyssey 2001 and its depiction of the first war. The earliest primates fighting over a watering hole. You don't need a degree from a seminary to understand why people fight with each other. But the end of Matthew is telling you, if you blow up your city <laughs> and go hang out with everybody else and... As Paul says in Philippians, put the needs of others before yourself, you won't have a war. It's not rocket science. But if you stray, if you stray 
from the empirical reality of Scripture. It's empirical. And you drift off into the abstract. Then you start building your statues in your head. And pretty soon, you're convinced of whatever you're convinced of, that it's worth whatever you think it's worth, to do whatever you think you need to do to justify yourself or to defend whatever it is you want to defend. I was amazed. I was amazed when we had the immigration crisis in the U.S., Richard, how many people were offended at the basic claim that borders don't exist, which is a fact. Come with me. We'll walk to northern Minnesota. Show me where there's a border between Canada and Minnesota in the real world. I would love to see it, Rich. The reason why you can't see borders from space and why you walk and you can't see them, the only reason we have a border, as I talked about in Hosea, is because you have an army there. The only reason you have a border is so that you can say to people, you're not allowed in. That's the only reason you have a border. Across the border between the United States and Canada in the middle of Montana, you can just walk across. There is no border functionally because there's no military there. There's no police there. There are no armed guards there. Now, once you try to go and get a job or something like that and they want to look at your passport, na, 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 yes, the authorities are going to catch you there too. But again, it's the authorities. The Great Wall of China was built so that there would be a military barrier between armies. That you can't see from space. But the reason why you can see it from space is because a military built it for military reasons. We want to create fortresses. Now, in the Bible, they talk about fortresses at the scale of a city. Now we have fortresses the size of Texas and beyond across the entire southern United States. Fortress United States. But just like the fortress of Jerusalem... God can breach any wall. Just like the fortress of the United States, God can breach any wall. So the fact that John the Baptist appears here in the wilderness, it's a border that's not a border. It's a river that stands between the hill country and the desert. With that, the word is continuing to live in the place where it was born, the realm of the shepherds. And realm, you know, that's a Middle English word that means kingdom. We have one proprietor of the land. That's the one who created the heavens and the earth. And then we have the sheep. But we have the shepherds who lead the sheep, who guide the sheep, who take care of the sheep. That shepherd is functionally God for those sheep. And they must listen to the word of the shepherd as if the word came from God himself. Now, if the shepherd is using his own words and not the words of God, then that judgment will be on the shepherd. But for the sheep who says, I want to follow God and not the shepherd, judgment will come upon the sheep for being disobedient. 
Because for the sheep, there is no difference between God and the shepherd. Because the sheep only hears the word of the shepherd. Now people can go like, well, how does the shepherd know that the shepherd is correct? And When it comes to scripture, the shepherd listens to scripture. But for the sheep, there is one who brings scripture to them. So the tension here lies between the one who created the heavens and the earth and the one who is put there to make sure they listen and they understand. This is what Jesus is trying to say in his final words of Matthew. I have been given alexousia. So you go now and teach. But they are teaching not because God told them to, but because Jesus told them to on behalf of God. They can't say, wait a second, Jesus, let's listen to God and see what God has to say, and then I'll believe you. No, I have been given all exousia. There's no one else to listen to. But Jesus, what if you're wrong? I have been given all exousia. There is one teaching for you, and it comes from my mouth. Now, if I am disobedient to what has been given to me, that's my problem. But for you, there's one problem. Are you following my word or are you not following my word? The sheep who is obedient is not obedient to God. He's obedient to the shepherd who is functionally God for that sheep. This is so hard to teach in an American setting, Richard, and I appreciate the way you articulated it because ultimately it's not Jesus who's the autocrat. It's not the shepherd who's the autocrat. It's God the Father who's the only autocrat. But through his words, which Jesus mouths for the sheep, and which the teacher mouths for his students, through those words, functionally, which is a word we use often on this program, functionally, my daughter, Dahlia, when she stands at the chanter stand and recites the Psalter, functionally, she is David the shepherd in the assembly. So difficult for people to grasp that. But I ask you, if she is reading the words of David in the church, what is the difference? Is she speaking or is David speaking? And if David's words are the words of God, why does it matter that it is David who is speaking? It is functionally God who is speaking. So the shepherd is overwritten by Elohim in this sense. That is why functionality is critical, and that is why the autocrat of Scripture is so essential. You want to ask how it works, and, well, how can we make this work, Father Mark? Just keep reading Scripture. Just keep reading Scripture. That's what we do on the podcast. That's what we do off the podcast. That's what I do when I go to bed at night. It's what I do when I wake up. It's what Richard and I do during break at work. It's what we do constantly. Just keep reading Scripture. Keep explaining Scripture. Someone asks you a question, recite Scripture back to them. Someone has a problem, defer back to Scripture. Someone asks you to speak about something, say yes, and then just talk about Scripture. Do not talk about what they want you to talk about. Talk about Scripture. Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. And don't say, oh, that's sola scriptura, because no one is sola scriptura. Show me one Protestant community that really believes sola scriptura. Never mind that what they mean is personal relationship with Jesus, which is not scripture. 
Scripture, Scripture, Scripture. The voice of the Lord crying in the wilderness, making straight his path for the sake of the poor. We are living in very sad times, brothers and sisters. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.